Hey there, On The Deal fans. Sam Thornton here, owner of DL Sports and host of On The Deal podcast with a quick word before this episode gets underway. What I want you guys to do before this episode begins is to pull out your phone and follow the DL Sports Instagram page with the handle at DL Sportscom. That's at DL Sports C-O-M. The account has a wide range of content, including sports updates, breaking news, podcast snippets, and more. So do me a favor and hit the follow button right now. And if you want to follow some of my own personal content, make sure to hit the follow button on my Twitter handle at Sam C. Thornton. Thanks, guys. And enjoy this episode. On this week's episode of On The Deal Podcast, we are back, ladies and gentlemen. It feels so good to be sitting here in front of this microphone again. We had a slight hiatus due to the end of the semester in my graduate school program. You guys know how it goes. Busy time of the year as always for everybody. But I'm glad and super pumped to say that we are back every single week with a new episode of On The Deal Podcast, and I'm beyond excited. But with that being said, we will be talking today. Lead storylines going around in the NFL currently. Who is the team to beat in the AFC? How about the NFC? There's some teams making late season runs that could sneak into the playoffs. And who is going to win the NFL MVP award this year? And it doesn't stop there. We have the college football playoff coming up. I have my reaction on if the committee got it right or not. The Heisman vote happened over the weekend. Did the correct Heisman get the trophy? And finally, to end the show, we have an interview with sports editor of the Crimson White and the co-host of the Blue Collar Unplugged podcast, Blake Byler. There's a lot we have to get into, so let's not waste any time and get this episode underway. Welcome to episode number 17 of On the Deal podcast. And the NFL season is heating up as we head into the final stretch here. And within the AFC, I genuinely believe that anybody who makes the playoffs could end up going to the Super Bowl. It's crazy. I think we knew this coming into the year that the AFC would be stacked with talent, but it has exceeded my expectations. And I'm sure everybody is looking forward to the playoffs on that side of the league. With that being said, whose conference is it right now in the AFC? It really comes down to three teams, and I would have said four a few weeks ago, but the Dolphins have hit a wall, especially with that loss on Sunday night against the Los Angeles Chargers. But it's the Kansas City Chiefs, the Buffalo Bills, and the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm aware that the Bengals have the Chiefs' number. They've beaten them three times in the same calendar year, but I just can't do it yet. I can't quite pull the trigger on the Cincinnati Bengals, and I was an advocate for them early on in the year, even when they were 0-2. The team to beat in the AFC are the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. With everything they're doing right now, despite that meltdown in the second half against the Denver Broncos on Sunday, they are just so good. And Patrick Mahomes is the best player I've ever seen in my entire life. He's better than Brady ever was. He's better than Rodgers ever was. He's better than Peyton Manning ever was. He's better than anyone else in the NFL at this moment at any position. And when I say the word better, I mean talent-wise. The things he does on the field, the no-look flip passes, the one he had to McKinnon on Sunday, it's crazy. This has nothing to do with his legacy when I say better. And honestly, it's a shame that people are experiencing burnout from Mahomes because the way he's playing and the things he's doing in the field right now without Tyreek Hill, 
He's leading the NFL in passing yards. He's connected with with his receivers on every level. He hasn't skipped a beat. He's a once-in-a-generation type player. Has anyone ever, and you can put your hand up here, bet against Patrick Mahomes before? It's okay. Raise your hand. No shame. I've been there too. It might be the most frustrating experience you'll ever endure in your entire life. And I mentioned the receiving core of the Chiefs, the way he's connecting with them. Although they don't have the flashy names like your Stephon Diggs's, your Jamar Chase's of the world, even the secondary guys that the Bengals have like T. Higgins and the Bills in, in, in the Bills case like Gabe Davis, the Chiefs have some underrated weapons that come next year won't be considered underrated anymore. A few guys that come to mind in that category, for one, Isaiah Pacheco, Jarek McKinnon, and I'm not trolling when I say this. Juju Smith-Schuster has become one of the most reliable receivers in the NFL this year. And Travis Kelsey, obviously, is one of the best in the game. And I know for a fact that Patrick Mahomes, and this is the kicker here, he's not a very outspoken individual. But you know in his head he's waiting for his shot again against the Bengals. And he's not, like I said, he keeps all of those thoughts internally within the press, within the media. When it, when it comes to those kind of things, he's not a very vengeful individual. But I know for a fact that in his mind, he's got to be saying, I want another shot at the Bengals. And I want to run them off the field. And I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to see an angry Patrick Mahomes on the other side of the sideline. As for the Bengals, though, I talked about some of their offensive weapons. They have stepped up significantly in that area. Even from the base that they they were at last season. But their defense has become one of the best in the AFC. It used to be Burrow going in, stepping on the field, doing everything in his will to win. And the defense would do just enough to edge out their opponent. Just so everyone knows, Joe Burrow hadn't beaten the Browns in his career until Sunday afternoon. He was 0-4 in his young career. But the defense of the Cincinnati Bengals held the Browns and Nick Chubb, who was one of the best backs in the league, to just 10 points. And Chubb had a measly 34 yards. And not to mention they have Deshaun Watson back. They also had that big interception late in the game against Deshaun Watson, who I thought has exceeded expectations considering his time away. He looked better, especially in the first half. The Bengals' defense, if they keep this trend up, they're going to win the AFC. They are outplaying both the Chiefs and the Bills on defense at this moment. Yes, they are, which is crazy to say. And that's why I don't see it continuing. When you go up against Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, and the bright lights with those big, deep threats, the guys I talked about earlier, Gabe Davis, Stephon Diggs, Patrick Mahomes. I'm not going to put my money on Eli Apple after what I saw last year in the postseason. I'm just not. I'm just not. He was targeted every single game. It was embarrassed at least once or twice in all of those games. They would do just enough to get over that hump. Let's go to the Buffalo Bills. As for the Buffalo Bills, I just want to say that Josh Allen... He has balls of steel, and he is just a machine on the field, refuses to let being hit hard stop him. It's just, you, you always think that at some point, he's just going to come up limping. It's just made, he's made of steel. He is the man of steel. I don't have any disbelief in their offense. They've weathered the storm against that 
elite Jets defense on Sunday after they lost earlier in the season to them. They laid a goose egg in the first half on Sunday, which is promising with their you know comeback ability. But I don't think anybody has concerns about their offensive production. We know what they're about. And no one really had worries about their defense either. Until recently, you know, we hear the news about Von Miller tearing his ACL. He's going to be out for the year. That's a huge loss for them in their pass rush defense. It would be a huge loss for any team in the NFL. And yes, while that hurts them, they are one of the few teams that can respond to that kind of adversity because they have so many guys on that defensive line who can get after you. Ed Oliver, absolute workhorse. And they made Mike White, they made him reconsider his starting role on Sunday for the New York Jets. I'll tell you that much. I mean, the Jets might have to put in Zach Wilson after all those hits that Mike White took. And listen, their secondary of the Buffalo Bills, it's been banged up all year. It's still banged up. That's a concern that I have come, you know, playoff time, not in the early stages. But if they're playing those deep, you know, significant threats, at the wide receiver position, your Jamar Chases of the world, that's his concern. That's a concern. We saw what happened in Miami in week two. Yes, that was week two. I'm going to go all the way back to week two. But Jalen Waddell, Tyreek Hill, they had their way with that banged up secondary. But really, it comes down to these three teams. All three of these teams are poised to take the throne away. But here's the thing. If the Chiefs are not beaten... This year, they are still sitting on that throne, obviously. The thing is, if the Bills were to make it to the Super Bowl, I'd still say the Chiefs come next year, week one, they're still the team to beat in the AFC, not the Buffalo Bills. But it's different if the Bills were to make it to the Super Bowl, dethrone the Chiefs for the fourth consecutive time, it would now be Joe Burrow's conference. It would simply be Joe Burrow, and the Cincinnati Bengals Conference. The AFC would belong to them. There's no debating that. Let's flip it over to the NFC. While the playoffs on the AFC are going to be tight, and I think the general public probably thinks more mayhem might commence in the AFC playoffs, I still think it's going to be those three teams in the end. One of those three teams is going to make the Super Bowl. I don't see a team like the Tennessee Titans or the New England Patriots coming out of nowhere. I have a sick feeling, though, that the NFC bracket is going to get totally screwed up. I don't know what it is. I just have a feeling in my mind. I, I can paint the picture now. Everybody knows it's the 12-1 and Eagles. You have the 12-1 and Eagles, the Dallas Cowboys, and then the 49ers, and then everybody else. The Vikings are there, but I think they're one of the worst 10-win teams I've ever witnessed. They fall along the lines, maybe not to that degree, but they're on par with the Pittsburgh Steelers a few years ago when they were beginning their season 10-0. The Detroit Lions ran a train on them this weekend. And we're going to talk about the Lions later. Don't you worry. I'm very excited about what they might have in store for a playoff push. But the Eagles, on the other hand, they are one of the most legit 12-1 teams I've ever seen. They are so complete in every way. Jalen Hurts is having the year of his life. A.J. Brown is everything is advertised through that trade pickup. Devontae Smith is one of the best two guys in the league. Miles Sanders, when they go ground heavy, is a beast. And I think he's severely underrated at his position. I really do. 
And while everyone is talking about the Cowboys and the 49ers defense, the Eagles defense is just as good, if not better. I would give the edge to the 49ers. They're probably first in terms of overall pass rush efficiency and run defense. But you could make an argument that the Eagles have a better run defense and a better secondary than the Cowboys. I would, as a general manager and owner of a team, I would take Darius Slay over Trevon Diggs. Darius Slay in man coverage is a top three corner in the NFL. No debate. I'm not going to sit here and have someone come on the show and debate that with me. And while Diggs is a flashy name, while Diggs is a ball hawk machine, and he's been that way since his days at Alabama, and he can make the, the game change in so many ways with a turnover, I'm just... I am more of a traditional corner type of guy. And I think Darius Slay in command coverage is much more valuable come playoff time. While I think their win against the Giants this weekend was expected, the Giants are slipping, of course, but they dominated them in every way in their barn at MetLife Stadium. I mean, it was a smackdown. And it's a divisional road game in Week 14 with major playoff implications. The Eagles are the team to beat. But now we have to turn to the other two teams chasing them. I think the 49ers are right there. I've been on them all season long. And it's funny because, you know, they're sitting at 8-4 and four before Sunday's game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And everybody in the media, your talking heads, Colin Coward, your local people, you know, they're out here titling them as their dark horse. It's like this team is not a dark horse. They are a full-on wagon. They're going to win the NFC West with ease. As I mentioned, the defense is bar none one of the best in the NFL. And when you just lay out their roster on paper, they have the most talent out of anybody. Out of anybody. Imagine having a team with Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, who thankfully is going to be back this season after that scary injury on Sunday. Everybody thought his season was going to be on the line. But he's fine. He's fine. George Kittle. And Brandon Ayuk, who I've been pushing for a while now, I've been on the record saying that he's the most underrated skill player in the league. And with Debo out for a few weeks, I don't think that's going to be a debate anymore. He is so good. You know, all of those players, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. It really doesn't matter who plays quarterback on that team. And Brock Purdy, man, I'll tell you what. The kid has game. And the kid has some moxie to him, too. He acts like he belongs, and he's not just converting these average RPOs and checkdowns. Like, I'm talking pretty elite-level balls down the field in instances, and he can escape the pocket, all while looking as comfortable as the cool side of the pillow. I mean, he is so good. I'm on this team. I'm praying, just praying, praying, praying. Can we please get this NFC Championship matchup of the Eagles and the 49ers for the culture? But I hate to be in this position, and I can't promise that. No one can promise that. The playoffs are crazy. But there's one more team that I hate to admit is right there, and it's the Dallas Cowboys. It's no secret I hate the Cowboys. I'm not going to hide it from you guys. They are by far my least favorite team in the league. But they also have, top to bottom, one of the best rosters on paper in the NFL. What made me finally smile this weekend after accepting that fact that they could potentially be in the Super Bowl or Super Bowl bound is the play from Dak Prescott against the 1-11 Houston Texans down the stretch. 
I don't care if he had a 98-yard drive to end the game. And Booker McFarlane was on ESPN saying, if it was any other quarterback who had that 98-yard drive, everyone would be saying, oh, that's the craziest play of the year. What a player. No, not against that team at home. I'm sorry. That's what happens when you're a Dallas Cowboy. It is the NFL and anything can happen on any given Sunday. But wow, they got lucky in that one. I was shocked after Dak threw that interception late in that game that he was able to even go on a 98-yard drive to seal the game. That performance, it gives me hope. And it gives me hope to every single Cowboys hater out there because not only do we get the Cowboys curse in the postseason to start with, but we can already see it unfolding against the worst team in the league. This is why Dak is not going to be able to guide them to a Super Bowl. He cannot perform with that inconsistent level when it matters most. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if Dak Prescott were in a Jaguars uniform, nobody would consider him a top 10 quarterback. And he's not a top 10 quarterback, but some people believe he is. He's lucky to have that star on the side of his helmet, especially with the weapons he has. I mean, come on, man. You can guide that team to a Super Bowl, right? It's never going to happen. Too inconsistent. And it happened last year in the first round against the 49ers where they got embarrassed. Remember when I said a few moments ago that someone in this NFC bracket will get upset? My money is on them. And it could just be my hatred. It could just be my hope for their downfall. But a team like the Detroit Lions, if you were a high wildcard seed, the fifth seed in the NFC, and let's say the Lions were fourth, although they're not going to win their division. The last team you want to play right now is the Detroit Lions. Who would have thought I'd be saying that? They've won five out of the last six games, and this is a perfect transition into teams that could sneak into the playoffs. The team I really wanted to highlight was them, the Lions. They have a 29% chance to make the playoffs right now. And listen, their remaining schedule, their last four games, Listen to this, at the Jets, at the Panthers, home against the Bears, and then on the road in Green Bay to play the Packers. And yeah, I know three of those games are on the road, but that is an ideal lineup in terms of opponents, and they could win out. It's going to take a dogfight, especially that Jets game, who are also fighting for the postseason, and the unlikely heroes of the Carolina Panthers, who are plus 350 to win the NFC South right now. They sit a game behind the Bucks. It would make my year if the Panthers snatched the postseason away from Tom Brady. This season has been crazy. I can't even put into words the roller coaster of emotions I felt as a Panthers fan this year. It's giving me flashbacks to that 2014 season where they made the playoffs with a 7-8-1 record. And they won their first playoff game. The final four games for the Panthers, another team I think... I really think they could sneak in here. Home against the Steelers. Home against the Lions. On the road against Tampa. And then on the road against the Saints. I mean, very winnable. Both of the, both those teams could get it done. The big one for the Panthers, obviously, is Tampa. If they win that, they're in. Obviously, they have to take care of business beforehand. But if they go 2-0 and then beat Tampa on the road... They're in. It's win mode now. It's so much more fun 
when your team is winning and how happy it would make me if they were to sneak in and play the Cowboys in the first round of the playoffs. And I'm just seeing it now lining up for me. And they would be a home game too because they would get the fourth seed. They'd be the worst divisional winner with the worst record. They'd be the fourth seed. Dallas would be the five. They would come to Charlotte and Bank of America Stadium. I would have to go. I would have to go. That would be electric. Can't get too ahead of myself here because I could ramble all day long about the possibilities of that outcome. But let's finish the NFL segment with some MVP talk. Ladies and gentlemen, the NFL MVP this year belongs to Jalen Hurts. I really want to harp on the questions people had about his throwing ability before the season started. And I've talked about it before on the show early on in the year. I think it was around week four, week five, when they were just rolling past opponents. But the work he's put in in the offseason, it's evident. Because the kind of throws he's making at the moment, they don't just happen overnight. They don't just happen overnight with an A.J. Brown signing or a Devontae Smith stepping up his game all of a sudden. No, he put in that work. He put in that work, and that's what makes this Eagles team so dangerous because you could defend the pass so well in your coverage, and guess what? Nick Sirianni sees that you're weaker on the edges of the line. Whoop, there goes J1 in the QB motion. Oh, you're pinching up in the coverage? You want to blitz him? Too late. Ball's out. 50-yard bomb to the house. A.J. Brown. The way he's diversified his game is unreal, especially in the air. And not only is he the MVP, but he's the most improved player of the year. If he could win both, I would give them both to him. Mahomes, Allen, Tua, they're in the distance. Those are definitely competitors, but they're in the distance. I think Tua is out of it based on the last two games he's had. And the only argument I could hear is Mahomes. But when you're sitting at 12-1 and in the NFC, and nothing is slowing you down, and you're the sole driver of that record, you're the one responsible for that record. Yes, they are a complete team, I understand that, but he is the driver of that bus. There's no debate. J1 Hurts is going to win it. He's going to win the MVP. Before we begin the college football segment, I just need to take the time to send my deepest condolences to the Leach family as Mike Leach, head coach of Mississippi State, has suddenly passed away this morning due to heart complications. Just an all-around great human being, terrific leader, and he will be missed dearly by all football fans across the country. Some things are bigger than sports, and you know, this news is hard to swallow, so let's make sure to keep his family in your prayers as we move on. The college football playoff is set. It will be Georgia against Ohio State in Atlanta, and then Michigan and TCU and Arizona facing off. Before I give my predictions, though, I need to comment on if the committee got these four teams right. And yes, they got the four teams right. Although this was a relatively weak year for college football in terms of the depth, but you know, who knows? I could be proven wrong. Crazy things have happened. As an Alabama fan, of course, I was surrounded by fans vouching for us to get in. I'm, I'm guilty of vouching for us for a little bit there. And while I understood the argument of Alabama being favored in their first matchup, and a great point of analysis where you could say that TCU deserves to get in, but do you think TCU would beat Alabama? You'd probably say no. So what we really see now is the committee is all about the most quote-unquote deserving programs and the best seasons that they strung together throughout the course of the year. Not the best teams. It's not. If you were going to put the best teams, Alabama would be there at four. They would. But as for TCU, I think they did deserve to get in. 
They had a great year, 12-0 in the regular season, endured a tough schedule. And when they were put up next to Alabama in terms of resume, they had the advantage. They had the Texas similarity. They blew them out at their place. Alabama only won by one. When all of this was being put up to the test, I feel like TCU had to lose to Kansas State by more than two or three scores to get bounced out. And obviously they did just enough by taking it to overtime. The other team though, and this is the argument I want to make, Ohio State is where I saw an advantage in terms of Bama's chances of getting in. And this is where I will plead my case for Alabama. Listen, you have your biggest game of the season in your own barn against your biggest rival, Michigan. We all know they're great this year. We all know how great Michigan looks. But you get blown out. I mean, it was a beatdown. There's no hiding from that. And when you compare the two teams side by side, you know, they're pretty close in terms of quality wins. Ohio State had that win against Penn State, which is probably eh, a little bit better than Alabama's win on the road against Ole Miss. But they're pretty comparable opponents. And Alabama's schedule throughout the course of the year was significantly tougher. But it comes down to you take a one-loss team who got embarrassed in their game in their big who got embarrassed in their biggest game of the year, or a two-loss team who lost on two last-second plays on the road against two top ten opponents. Clearly, the losses matter, and the loss that LSU had against Georgia, I think, was a big blow for Alabama. I mean, they got pummeled. You know, I get it. I understand it. Honestly, I think Ohio State could give Georgia a decent fight, maybe. For Tennessee fans out there, you guys have to be kicking yourself from losing that game against South Carolina because if you had been a one-loss team with one loss against Georgia, even though you guys got pretty much manhandled, you would be in this playoff regardless if Hendon Hooker was healthy or not. There's a lot of people out there saying that they should be ahead of Bama and the rankings, and who cares? When you're not even in the playoff, it, it doesn't matter. But when you let up 60-plus to South Carolina, even though they went on and did great things later on in the season, went big win against Clemson, whatever you want to say, you're not going anywhere. Now, for my prediction, I think Georgia has already locked this up. Not a hot take. I think Ohio State could give them a fight early on in this game, but inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium, I can't see it. I can't see it happening. What they've done to every single team this year, I mean, the Tennessee game, the LSU game in particular that come to mind for me, they just had their way with them. And not to mention the Oregon game in week one in that same stadium. They're going to be back in Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the third time this year. And both those games, they have dominated their opponent. It's pretty much a home game. There's going to be no answer for Brock Bowers or Washington in the slot. The defense is something never they've never seen before. Like, if they thought Michigan's defense was great down the stretch, imagine that on steroids throughout the whole game, even when they have their third stringers in. I'm definitely more excited about the TCU and Michigan game because on one hand, Michigan looks way more legit than they have in a long, long time. They look better than last year's team. And this kid, J.J. McCarthy, he's that dude, man. He's, he could play some ball. But so can Max Duggan, who was second in Heisman voting this year. I was skeptical of TCU all year long. And my friends know that. I faded them in almost every single week on my book. I faded them against Kansas State too. They lost me some money this year. But this kid, Duggan, I have to admit, man, he's something special. He has my respect with all of the things he do he's done throughout the season, the way he attempted to will his team to that win against Kansas State in the Big 12 Championship, 
even though they fell short, man, that quarterback matchup, it's going to be electric. But something tells me that TCU is a team of destiny for whatever reason. I have a feeling about them. I have a feeling it's going to go down to the wire, maybe even a walk-off field goal, which they've done throughout the year. So I'm going to get my score predictions for both these games. First one, Georgia 45, Ohio State 23. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Georgia's going to go up early. It's going to be over by the third. I'm sorry. I'm cutting it there. 45-23, Georgia's going to the national championship. Then I'm going to go TCU 35, Michigan 34. And that comes as a shock to some people. I know it. But if this comes true, I'll make my prediction later on in that national championship game. But I think you guys know. This would not be a great matchup for the Horned Frogs. And even if Michigan were to make it to the national championship, if we get a Michigan-Georgia, do you guys remember what happened last year? Do you guys remember what happened last year in Miami? That was a beatdown. I, I know they've gotten better. And you could say that that Georgia team was better too. They've taken a little bit of a step down, but I don't even know. They could be just as on par with that Georgia team. This Georgia team went undefeated in the regular season. Georgia lost to Alabama last year and the SEC championship. They look dominant. I don't see them losing, no matter what. I mentioned it just a minute ago, but the Heisman race this year, we had USC's Caleb Williams take it home. Max Duggan of TCU was second. CJ Stroud, third. Stetson Bennett, fourth. And I really wish I had more to say about this, guys, but I'm sorry. I just, I don't have a lot. I mean, this might be one of the weakest Heisman years in recent memory. And I guess it's kind of weird not having an Alabama player in the mix or no high drama involved with the selection. Who's, who's it going to be? Do we like him? No, it should go to him. It was always like, yeah, okay, Caleb, here you go. After that Notre Dame game, he pretty much locked it up. Everybody else was, you know, fine, but they weren't Heisman caliber. And I wouldn't even put him as a Heisman caliber. There wasn't like a moment this year where people were saying, yeah, he's, he's legit. He's, he's, he's locked this up. That was a Heisman moment. He's a legit quarterback. That's not what I'm saying. But it was just an off year. And I think people can agree with that statement. This was just a shock to me because in the middle of the season, we did have a guy like that. It looked clear as day. And it was Hendon Hooker. who was going to run away with it if he didn't get injured. And he wasn't even invited to the Final Four. And to me, you know, coming from an Alabama fan... That's criminal. I don't care if he got hurt. And listen, I'm not saying that he should have won it over Caleb Williams, even with the second half of the year, but he had a hell of a lot better season than Stetson Bennett. Way better. And I think a lot of people would agree with, would agree with that too. Either way, Caleb Williams, he's the Heisman this year. He and Lincoln Riley were on a roll all season long, but for whatever reason, the Mormons had their number. Even when he chirped them by putting, you know, F Utah on his nails, that was just an awful beat. That you can't you can't do that and then win the Heisman. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not a good look. Not a good look by any means. But hey, no shame. You went for it. He's gonna be a great NFL quarterback. I can tell you that much. And we're gonna talk about this later on in another episode when the draft is coming up. I think he deserves more praise for being an NFL QB. I think a lot of the guys at the top like Stroud and Levis, he might be a better prospect than them based on what I've seen. But I don't know anything. I'm just I'm just a football enjoyer, so we can get into that later. 
another day. But those are just my thoughts. All right, guys, now we're going to hop into our interview with Crimson White sports editor Blake Beyer. This was a great segment with him talking some Alabama athletics. So without further delay, here is Blake Beyer. All right, guys, we are now joined by a very special guest. It is sports editor of the Crimson White at the University of Alabama and co-host of the Blue Collar Unplugged podcast, Blake Byler. Blake, thank you so much for joining the show, man. How's it going? Uh, it's good, Sam. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man. Well, uh, let's get right into this. Let's not waste any time for the people in the audience. Uh, we're going to get right into it. And I want to start with tied hoops for obvious reasons. They are now number four in the latest AP top 25 poll after defeating number one Houston over the weekend, or I guess then number one Houston, their highest ranking since 2006 season where they began 7-0, but ultimately failed to make the NCAA tournament. They went on to go 7-9 and in SEC play that season. Hopefully this team will have a brighter fortune. And I think they will. I mean, you could go on about the things that I've seen so far from this team just nine games in, but I want to hear your overall thoughts about the way Nate Oates' squad has just started out this year. Yeah, well, it's obviously been an incredibly strong start for Alabama this year, but we saw a strong start just like this a season ago, actually. Um, it's really interesting. Alabama's eight and one coming off a big win against Houston, and they have a game against Memphis coming up. And that's the exact same situation that they were in a year ago. Uh, but whenever you're comparing these two teams, one of the things that sticks out to me about this year's team is just the length that this team has uh, from top to bottom in the starting lineup and also on the bench. You look at the starting lineup, you have Sears, obviously, at 6'1", who's a little smaller. But then you go 6'4", Namari Burnett, 6'8", or 9", Brandon Miller, uh, Clowney at 6'10", Charles Bediaco at 7'. And so you have all this length that can create so much disruption on the defensive end. Uh, and so I think Alabama's defense this year is really really what separates them from maybe last year's team uh, and other NATO teams that haven't been as good. Um, the defense is truly elite and next level. I think Houston only scored, uh, you mentioned the Houston game, I think they only scored like six, eight points in the last eight minutes of the game. <clears throat> Something like that, excuse me. And so just the defense and uh, the way that this team has gelled together so far uh, has really made it a fun team to watch and a team that I think is a really bright future. I absolutely agree with that analysis of yours. I mean, we're so used to seeing the team, the live and die three team in the Alabama NATO to squad over the last couple of seasons. What really stands out to me this year, you already mentioned him, Brandon Miller. I mean, this kid is an absolute baller. He's established himself as one of the best freshmen in the nation already maybe even one of the best players in the country without, without a doubt in my mind, just what makes him so special to you in your analysis? Well, Miller's versatility really stands out to me because he is a guy who's six foot nine, but he has guard skills. Uh, and so that goes a long way, even projecting him even further into uh, being a potential NBA player. And people have him mocked in the lottery in most mock drafts. Uh, but his shooting touch was a bit of a question mark in high school. Um, he what he didn't shoot 40% or anything like that uh, in high school, but coming in so far at Alabama, he shot, I think he's shooting 43% from three on the year. Mm -hmm. And so uh, his stroke looks really nice. And just from over the past, he's in, he's been a little in a little bit of a slump the past couple of games. But before that, I think he was shooting over 50% from three to start through the first six games or whatever. And so he's been a huge threat from three. And I think as he grows and as he gets more used to the physicality of 
of the college game that's going to open up more driving lanes for him and I think he's going to become a better finisher over the course of the season uh, but his shooting and his defense whenever you have a guy that's six foot nine that can move the way that he can and can defend the way that he can uh, we've seen him have a couple of really nice blocks and transition I remember one specifically against Michigan State where he uh, swatted a shot back that looked like it could have been an easy layup and so just his versatility on the defensive end uh, as well as his shooting touch have made him an incredible player so far. Absolutely. And you also have Noah Clowney, another front court freshman, and that tandem has been absolutely magnificent this year. The thing I think this team is what makes this team so special, rather, is just how they have such a great diversity of production with young freshmen and someone who I've also raved about early on is the Ohio transfer, Mark Sears. I feel like he's really been the rock of this team and has really and it has really rather been the advocate in the latest press conference about Alabama being a basketball school, becoming a basketball school, putting the nation on notice. And Nate Oates was pretty quick to keep that comment, you know, contained for the moment, really harping on the two games ahead, one tonight against Memphis and then Gonzaga later in the week. Obviously, two really good teams. We know Memphis just took down number 11, or I guess then number 11, um, Auburn over the weekend. So how do you view all of that? How do you feel all those comments from Nate Oates and comments from Sears and just the impact he's had for this team, plugging the team all together. Well, I think Sears has arguably been the most important player on the team because he's been the best shooter so far. He's shooting, I think it's 44% from three, um, which has carried over from Ohio. He's a great shooter at Ohio last season. Uh, but also he's been a very consistent point guard, which Alabama really needs because uh, you have Javon Quinterly coming back from injury. Uh, he's still getting to 100%. And then Jaden Bradley, uh, while he's been great, he's obviously still a freshman. And so um, Sears has shown a lot of maturity. He also, I think it's impressive how he guards really well. He's the smallest player uh, in the lineup, but one of the smallest players on the team. But he has that want to on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, he loves to get in people's faces. He loves to guard hard. He loves to get a bucket and then pick up somebody full court. And I think that's a really good mentality to have when you have a team that wants to preach uh, defense and toughness. Um, but when you're talking about the comments made, I think um, it's very obvious to see that Alabama's moving in a very uh, positive direction in terms of the basketball program. You had the Sweet 16 two years ago. Uh, last season, they had a bunch of big wins, and still the season ended in a disappointing manner, but still – uh, I think back-to-back -back top six seeds in the NCAA tournament for the first time in over a decade. Uh, so when you're comparing the program where it is now compared to where it was with uh, Avery Johnson, with Anthony Grant, the recruiting, everything, uh, it's very much on an upward trend. But I do agree with Oates whenever um, he's saying we need to focus on the games, uh, that they need to focus on the games this week because these are two really important games. And if you are Alabama, if you can get a win over Memphis tonight, and if you can beat Gonzaga on Saturday, you're looking at a 10-1, and one, I think it would be 11-1, and one, either 10 or 11-1 conference, non-conference schedule against one of the toughest non-conference schedules in the country. So that would be a ton of momentum heading into SEC play, which is also going to be really challenging. So just I think the way that they want to keep the focus on the here and now uh, is really good because you don't want to avoid a letdown game kind of like you had a couple of times last season. Totally. And we're going to talk about SEC play in a second here. But you did mention Javon Quinterly. We know he's coming back from injury. He's kind of had a sluggish start to the season. I kind of have questions about JQ's production. I actually wrote a blog yesterday about the ceiling for this team. And I really pointed towards JQ and how he eventually needs to step up his game here, especially in conference play if they want to go far. Because at some point, you know, Sears and Miller and other guys are going to have an off night. 
And he's just the type of guy who can flip a switch. We've seen that before in seasons. In previous seasons, he's won the SEC Tournament MVP a few years ago. And in a lot of those games that year when they went to the Sweet 16 in March, he was coming up big in crunch time with a rock in his hands, which has been an apparent struggle for him, especially in that UNC game I really noticed down the stretch when he had a few moments there where it didn't go according to plan. So do you agree that JQ eventually he's going to be really a guy that they're going to need down the stretch to get a little bump, a little, uh, little momentum going for him. I think so. And I think that he's going to improve the more he plays because he is only, what is it? Nine months post ACL surgery. And so for him to even be playing right now, it was really impressive to me. I didn't think he was going to be back. I thought this week we would maybe be coming up on his first game back. Uh, and so for him to already have been playing in five or six games, whatever it was so far, I think that's really impressive. I think he's going to thrive uh, more this season in the role that he's in. I like that he's coming off the bench. Um, that's where he came off and did the most damage in uh, the 2021 season during that Sweet 16 and SEC tournament championship run. Uh, I think that he just has to get his legs under him a bit more. I think we haven't necessarily seen the same explosiveness going to the rim, uh, but I think that's going to be something that he develops more over time. He looked really, he looked pretty good for most of the UNC game. Um, I thought down the stretch, it was tough because it's a four overtime game. It's their third game in four days. And so for him to be uh, kind of, they were running a lot of ISO ball uh, toward the end of the game. And it, it's tough to run sets and run things like that whenever um, you've played three games in four days, you're in double, triple overtime, guys are tired. Um, so I don't, I, I give him a little bit of slack for uh, some of the ISO ball moments at the end of the UNC game, but I thought overall he played a good game. Uh, he's also played pretty good defense this year, um, which he wasn't, he hasn't been really the best defender on the team the last two years, but it definitely seems apparent that he stepped up on that side of the ball and has more of a drive to be a good defender. Uh, he defended super well against uh, RJ Davis in the North Carolina game. And so uh, I just think as the season goes on, he's going to get more and more comfortable and that's going to make Alabama more and more dangerous. Yeah. And that was a big point that I was really proud of with this team against UNC. I mean, that backcourt of UNC is absolutely, they're electric. One of the best in the country, if not the best in the country. So that was a really good note to see, even though they both had a lot of points, it was a four overtime game as you know. So my really the big question here is through all of these topics, what do you think is the ceiling for this Alabama team? I mean, they've knocked off two number one teams before January 1st, which is something that hasn't been done in over 60 years. The fans are getting into it. The players believe that they belong. Where do you think this team can end up in SEC play and arguably the toughest conference top to bottom in the nation and even so forth in the March and April in the tournament? Ceiling is tough because you don't want to confuse ceiling with expectations, right? Because uh, ceiling is what they could become, whereas expectations is what you really want them to meet. And so from uh, a ceiling standpoint, Alabama has the potential to be the best team in the SEC, I believe. Uh, now, obviously, you have Tennessee and Arkansas, Kentucky, Auburn, all right there, and they're all really good teams. But I think from what we've seen so far through the first nine games of the season, Alabama has the chance to be uh, the best team in the SEC. They could win the SEC regular season title. Um, there are some tough stretches in SEC play when you're looking at the schedule. Uh, the SEC tournament is absolutely a, an attainable goal, I believe. Um, when it comes to expectations, I would uh, still temper them a little bit because 
of how good the SEC is, and you never know when another team could turn it on, like Mississippi State so far. They're undefeated, um, and they've looked really good. And so the SEC is really strong, especially at the top. So uh, you're looking at maybe you could expect like a 12-6, and 13-5 and 5 record, and if Alabama beats that, then they beat it. Um, I think they have the potential to maybe hit a 13-5, and 14-4 and 4, um, type record in SEC play. But again, the SEC is one of the toughest conferences in college basketball this season. Uh, but then when you're looking at the NCAA tournament, it's really hard to project that because you never know what kind of matchups you're going to get. Um, injuries could hit and anything like that. But I think Alabama has the talent to absolutely be a second weekend Sweet 16 type team and more. Um, but that we'll just have to see how they're they're playing towards the end of the season. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that analysis as well. I think that this team has the ceiling to go really far. I think they even could exceed that team that went to the Sweet 16 a couple years ago. But quickly, we're going to switch gears to football, pivot, complete 180 here, specifically the college football playoff. Listen, Alabama left out at the five slot. I hate to say it, but I think the committee got the four teams right even though Alabama would be favored in their first matchup. And maybe you can say that Alabama is objectively, you know, better than TCU or Ohio State, whichever team you want to argue. What are your thoughts on the four teams? And do you think the committee got this one right in your eyes? Yeah, I think they got it right. And I think it was a pretty easy decision, to be honest. Um, Like if you're Alabama and you wanted to get in, they they shouldn't have lost. Like losing two games is really detrimental to a team trying to make a four-team playoff. Um, I think – you could make the argument that Alabama is a better team, but I also don't think we've seen enough from Alabama actually on the field to, to make that claim completely uh, because Alabama doesn't have, they, they didn't have a signature win really this season. Uh, you had the win at Texas, which was really, that, that's probably their best win. And Texas was, what, did they go eight and four or nine and three? I can't remember. Uh, but whichever that was, that, that was probably their best win or a home win against Mississippi State. Um, So then you take that and you think that Alabama wasn't, you can see that Alabama wasn't really dominant in many of their wins. Uh, So I don't, I don't think we've seen enough from Alabama to just say they were far and away better than a TCU team that went 12 and 0 in the regular season. Uh, So I definitely think the committee got it right with the four teams that they chose. Yeah. What do you think about Ohio state in terms of that debate? For my case, if I were an Alabama fan, which I am, you know, I'm surrounded by friends who are Alabama fans. The case that I was really trying to make with them is, you know, Ohio State is probably the team that Alabama would edge out if they were to get into the college football playoff in terms of, you know, Ohio State had their biggest game of the year. You know, they got blown out, wiped out on their home on their home field, all that. And Alabama only lost two games on last second plays. What do you think about that argument in terms of, you know, going that direction in terms, you know, instead of going towards the TCU direction where they had a great regular season, like you just talked about. You know, it's tough because neither Alabama nor Ohio state made their conference championship game. Um, But then you also have to look at the games that they lost. And yes, Alabama lost two very close games on the last play of the game. Ohio state did get blown out by um, a very good Michigan team. Um, But I still think whenever you look at, resumes you, you you may think Alabama's better um, but Ohio State has a really good win over Penn State which is a top 10 team uh, which is far and away better than any of Alabama's best wins um, I think that it's a little closer than the Alabama TCU debate but it was going to be really hard for the committee to put a two loss Alabama team 
um, over and over a one loss Ohio State team that has a better win. Yeah, I get that too. I get that too. I think it was just like you said, the two losses. If they had only lost one game, the LSU game had gone another direction, I think they would be in even over Tennessee. If Tennessee wants to make that argument, I'm sorry, but the 60 points against South Carolina was too much in my mind. But what do you think Alabama has to do differently next season? There's some questions in the air. I mean, the transfer portal has been all over the place with the offensive and defensive coordinators. Perhaps Pete Golding is out of the picture. Perhaps Bill O'Brien, even though both of them might seem to be safe for now with that delay. Uh, that we've been experiencing. We haven't seen any movement there. You know, the quarterback situation with Milrow and Ty Simpson, the list goes on and on. But really, what are some things that come to mind for you in terms of next season in Tuscaloosa? Well, first and foremost, it needs to be the quarterback because we know that Bryce Young is going to be off to the NFL, probably a top three, top five pick. Uh, So once Alabama has the quarterback figured out, whether that be Milrow, whether that be Ty Simpson, or even a transfer portal quarterback, um, I think they need to really focus on developing their wide receivers because I think this year one of the biggest uh, issues that Alabama had was their lack of a vertical uh, threat that could open up their offense. Uh, Bryce Young made some ridiculous plays uh, all throughout the season, scrambling around the backfield, throwing guys open, uh, but they didn't have a consistent receiver like they had with the Jameson Williams and John Mechie. Uh, definitely not like uh, the receivers we've seen in the past, like a Devontae Smith or a Jalen Waddle, Jerry Judy, guys like that. Um, so I think if Alabama can develop some good wide receivers that can create separation and get open, that's going to be really good for whoever ends up at quarterback. Jermaine Burton had a pretty good end to the season. Um, he started, uh, he had like a 52-yard catch against Auburn. He had uh, his best game of the year against Austin P. He slowly started to become uh, a potential one for Alabama. And I think the belief is that he's going to return for his senior year. Uh, so you'll have him back. You'll have Ja'Cory Brooks back. Um, some of the freshmen showed some promise, like Isaiah Bond, Kendrick Law. Uh, mm-hmm. There have been a lot of receivers that have transferred out, like Trayshawn Holden. Uh, yesterday, Aaron Anderson, a uh, highly touted freshman, hit the portal. Um, but he never got to play due to injury. But uh, if Alabama can find some good weapons on the outside, I think that's going to go a long way. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, it's just going to take um, – I don't, I don't know if Pete Golding is going to be back. Uh, he may be. He may not be. But um, I think if Alabama can really get a dominant front seven like they used to have uh, back when their defenses were consistently top of the country and create consistent pressure uh, on the quarterback, they're going to be all right on the defensive end. Uh, they're bringing in some good recruits, I know. Uh, Dallas Turner is going to be a junior, probably one of the best players on the defense. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of good things about Caleb Downs uh, as mm-hmm. a guy who could come in and potentially be a day one starter back in the secondary. Uh, and so the talent's still going to be there. Um, we'll see what happens with the coaching, if there's a change on the staff. But uh, I think if those two things happen, Alabama can still be in pretty good shape to be a good team next year. Yeah, and the wide receiver position was definitely by far the the – position that lacked the most production on their offense this season. I mean, it wasn't even close. You know, Tyler Harrell was a guy who we thought was going to be kind of that burner guy, uh, transfer out of Louisville. We didn't ever get to play because he was injured the entire season. And like you said, Jermaine Burton's going to be back. He's searching promise at the end of last year. Do you think a lot of that, you know, the lack of production or maybe the lack of depth at wide receiver, maybe not the lack of depth, but just the, 
the production on the field, really. Do you think some of that had to do with the transfer portal and everything that's new, trying to get you know chemistry with the quarterback? I mean, Bryce Young is the best player in the country, so I don't know if that could have been the case, but what are your thoughts on that take? I think that's a possibility. I think the transfer portal is probably hurting development everywhere across the country because there are guys who, instead of staying to develop in a system, uh, if they're not playing, they're going to uh, go a different direction and try to find a place where they can get playing time. Um, so I think that that definitely hurts. I am not entirely sure about this year. I think it boiled down to they really thought Jermaine Burton was going to be the wide receiver one. And I remember uh, Coach Saban talking about that in, in the preseason, um, that they thought Jermaine was going to come in and, and be the top guy. And ultimately, he wasn't. Um, Ja'Cory Brooks, I thought, was going to take a step forward. He did from his freshman year to sophomore year. But if you look at last season, the only receivers that really got utilized were Jameson Williams and John Mechie. Uh, and so there wasn't a ton of receiver work behind him. Uh, so whenever you look at Ja'Cory Brooks, I guess uh, he grew a little bit. But outside of him, you really had no other guys in-house that were growing uh, to, in order to step into those starting roles. Now, I think uh, with this season's or with this year's freshman class, I think there are a lot of guys who could step up uh, if you have like a bond or a law, take a next step next season. Those could be guys that become really good uh, threats on the outside. Yeah, those guys are definitely going to step up. And I also think that Kobe Prentice was a guy this year who yeah. really showed a lot of promise. He was one of my favorite players to watch all year long for Alabama. But going back to the playoff, listen, let's be transparent here. Is Georgia going to just walk away with this national title? Or what do you think? I could just see them, you know, I, I, not, not see them. I can't see them losing to a team I mean I hate to say it but Stetson Bennett's confidence is really shining off on this entire team in a positive way and you can even go to the extent of maybe even titling him as underrated with even all the trolls out there talking about his age and all the weapons he has of course but either way is there any chance you could see them going down I think Georgia's gonna win the national championship I I think Michigan could give them a game uh but whenever it's when you look at Georgia this season, they've been kind of weird because they've had some games where they haven't really gotten up for them, and they've just been talented enough to walk away with the win. You look at the game at Missouri. Uh, their game against Kentucky was like a 16-6 to game or something like that. Um, so they've had a couple games where they, they haven't just blown out inferior competition, but at the same time, uh, they walked into – or they had Tennessee – uh, come to Athens and they just put a beating on them. It was, I think that game was a lot uh, more dominant than the score indicated. Um, so that game really proved to me that whenever there's a big game, uh, Georgia's going to be up and they're going to be ready for it and they're going to look dominant, uh, kind of like a lot of Alabama teams of the past, whenever uh, a big game would come up. And it was, it was very obvious that like Georgia has been there before and Tennessee hasn't. And so Looking at that first matchup against Ohio State, I think Georgia's just going to show up and they're going to not be afraid of the moment and they're going to know what they have to do uh, to get a win. Ohio State hasn't really been in that spot. C.J. Stroud um, hasn't been in a playoff. Um, the last Ohio State team, you have the 2020 Ohio State team that made the national championship, but they got wiped by Alabama uh, in that game. And so I think when you're looking at Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU, Georgia has been in that moment uh, more times, and they're going to be more ready for it. I think Michigan is the best team that can give Georgia a run, but without Blake Corum, it's going to be really tough without having that, uh, obviously, 
probably their biggest offensive weapon. Uh, so I, I, I do think Georgia is going uh, gonna to walk away with the national championship. Yes, I do too. And I'm really looking forward to both these games, obviously, as a college football fan. But the Michigan and TCU game is really intriguing to me just because I feel like TCU has been this, you know, this team of destiny all season long. That quarterback matchup between McCarthy and Duggan is going to be really fun to watch. And also, you know, Bennett and Stroud will also be fun. But Georgia and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, man, they're just they're on another level when they play up in there. And this is going to be the third game this year already in that stadium. So, I don't see it happening. Um, I don't see any competition happening. I think George is going to walk away with this. But Blake, thank you so much for joining the show. This was great. You're more than welcome to come back on anytime to talk shop about the Tide. Guys, make sure you guys go follow Blake on his social pages on Twitter and give the Blue Collar Unplugged podcast a listen as well. Blake, thanks again, man. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a blast. All right, guys, that is all for this episode of On The Deal Podcast. Like I said, feels great to be back. We're going to be back full-time every single week from here on out, so make sure to tell your friends, share this episode with them on your social pages, and we will be back next week with another episode.